Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the award-winning movie Poor Things, starring Emma Stone, Mark Ruffalo, and Willem Dafoe. Check out the new documentary, Freaknik, The Wildest Party Never Told, about the iconic Atlanta street party. And don't miss FX's Shogun, a reimagining of the epic tale starring Anna Sawai. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Super real. Hey, I'm Julian Morgans, and you're listening to What It Was Like. The show that asks people who have lived through big, dramatic events what it was like. Hey, and welcome back. If you follow the show, you might have noticed that we didn't upload any new episodes for quite a long time. Um, I basically just got, I got busy. I was working on a whole bunch of other projects, but you know what? I love this show. I've missed doing this show. So we've got a whole bunch of really cool episodes coming up, starting with this one. And this one is a banger. Today, we're talking to a guy who discovered the barrels in the bank in Snowtown. Now, even if you don't know the intricacies of the case, you'll probably recognize a few buzzwords there. Snowtown, barrels, bodies. So you've probably seen Snowtown, the movie, or or maybe you'll remember the actual case. But Here's a refresher. Here's the story. Between August of 92 and May of 1999, a guy named John Bunting and his two youngest sidekicks, Robert Wagner and James Velasikis, murdered a total of 12 people, mostly in the northern suburbs of Adelaide, and they stored their victims' bodies in plastic barrels in a disused bank in the rural town of Snowtown. And in some ways, the group had the, the dynamics of like a miniature cult. Uh, John Bunting, he was the leader, and he seemed to hold a really strong psychological control over his friends, Uh, which is interesting because I looked him up and he's he's kind of this small bearded guy with glasses. He kind of looks like a friendly intellectual. He doesn't have any tattoos. He just, I don't know, he doesn't have, you know, like if you look at a photo of Ivan Milat or Bradley Murdoch, you know, these other sort of like titans of Australian homicide. Those guys, they have this really distinct thuggish kind of look. They look physically scary. But I would argue that John Bunting, he just doesn't. His, his power wasn't physical. Like, like Charles Manson, actually. I think John Bunting's power was this unique ability to identify vulnerable people and then manipulate them. Um, let's, let's just talk about his background a little bit. So, so John Bunting, we ended up in South Australia, as you know, Adelaide, but he was actually born in Queensland in 1966. And as a child, he'd been sexually assaulted by a friend's older brother. Now, arguably, this sent him on a, on a lifelong crusade to punish pedophiles. But the people that he labeled pedophiles were also just kind of, you know, they were homosexuals or, or, or they were just people that he thought were weak. 
Um, apparently, he was particularly intolerant of, of drug addiction and, and obesity. So the story really gets started in 1991, and that's when Bunting moved to a house in Salisbury North in South Australia, and he befriended his neighbor, that's Robert Wagner, who was five years younger, and he also started dating a woman named Elizabeth Harvey and befriended her son, James Vlasicus. And the two younger men started hanging around with Bunting and, and just sort of absorbing his worldview. Now, I remember when I saw Snowtown. The movie is full of these scenes that are really hard to watch. But one of them that stood out to me, and you might remember this, was there was a scene where Bunting was forcing one of the boys to shoot a dog. And for me, this scene just kind of illustrated this little ecosystem that the guys lived in, like this world of intimidation, manipulation, and just and just normalized violence. And, and it was this world that just curdled into, into mass murder. Their first victim was a man named Clinton Trezice, who was bashed to death with a shovel in Bunting's living room in Salisbury after being invited over for just a social visit. Uh, this was in 1992. And then in 1993, the following year, Ray Allen Parker Davies, he started dating Bunting's ex-girlfriend. Uh, he was intellectually disabled, but, uh, you know, Bunting and Wagner found grounds to torture him to death in a bathtub, and then his body was buried in a shallow grave. And so on and so forth, until finally it was 1989, and the trio between them, they'd, they'd killed 12 people, and they had 12 bodies scattered across the state of South Australia, and mostly buried in shallow graves. Now, the more I look into this case, the more it strikes me just how coldly calculating Bunting was. He was completely psychopathic, but he was also highly organized and and able to create and execute a plan. So this arbitrary scattering of graves would, to him, it would have seemed like a bit of a liability. And Bunting wanted something with a bit more long-term security. So in January of 99, he rented an empty bank building in Snowtown, primarily as a, as a place to store human remains. Snowtown is a small wheat farming community. Until the bank vault situation, it didn't have anything to do with, with Bunting's murders. It's about two hours north of Adelaide. I've actually been there. It's kind of a quiet, peaceful place, but it's got a bit of that like ailing feeling that many towns have. It's got lots of empty shops, and I guess that renting the old state bank was was pretty cheap back in 99, especially in 99. But the other benefit was, of course, that bank vaults, they're really designed to keep their contents safe. You know, it really retains things, including smells. So Bunting and his accomplices collected up the remains of their victims, chopped them up into smaller bits and sort of jammed them all into plastic barrels and then moved them into the bank safe. And that's where today's guest comes into the picture. We're talking to a former police officer named Gordon Drage. And Gordon was the very first person to discover that Snowtown's old bank vault was full of bodies. And what I find just truly wild about this story is that Gordon had no idea what he was walking into. He didn't know that other detectives that he hadn't spoken to in Adelaide were looking into the possibility that South Australia had a serial killer. Gordon just thought he'd been sent there to investigate some stolen property. So he went along thinking it would be like a two-hour job tops and, you know, he'd be home for dinner. And then he just accidentally walked into this storage facility for one of Australia's most twisted serial killers. And I'm interested to know what that's like. How does an experience like that feel at the time? And, and how does it affect you in the hours and, and the days and the years after? And Gordon was kind enough to, to meet me at a studio near his home on the Gold Coast and tell me all about it. So now I bring you... Gordon Drage. Gordon, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Pleasure to be here. Let's go back to 1999. Let's just start with, tell me a bit about what you were doing at that time, what was happening in your life. Okay, I was working for the South Australian Police. I was a a senior constable um, in charge of the, well, Obviously, only only officer doing the forensic section at uh, Kadena. Okay, and and you were how old at that time? Equipment mass thirty six at that stage. Yeah, and and my understanding is you were the guy who was taking photos of crime scenes. Yes, yeah, I, I was the the CSI guy for a bit. Um, the CSI people, guy, the CSI okay. guy. Yeah, we we take photos, we go to crime scenes, do fingerprinting, and and collect you know, hairs and fibres and bloods and things like that. Put it into little sandwich bags. Yeah, all that stuff, yeah. Okay. So CSI guy is probably the easiest description. Okay, all right. 
So tell me about the day that you were called to Snowtown. Right. I was, um, it was the 20th of May, 1999. I was uh, actually driven across to the Clare Valley doing a job. So I got this beautiful drive across to the country um, into the Brossa Valley where I was looking at the remains of a car body. Uh, I've been asked to go and identify that. So I was actually out doing, just about finished that job when my phone rang. And it was one of the sergeants from, one of the senior sergeants from the Adelaide Forensic Office asking what I was doing for the day. And he said, well, if you're available, I'd like you to go to Snowtown. What did you think the job was going to be? Well, the job I was supposed to, I didn't know much about the job at all other than was I available? I said, yes, I could. Uh, and when I got there, uh, there was a couple of detectives there. There was a tow truck out the front of the police station, which is unusual. And they said, do you know anything about the job? And I said, well, no. So they handed me a piece of paper, an A4 piece of paper, and the top half of the page had a series of names on it, and the bottom half had a lot of property items, things like you know, televisions and fans and uh, lounge suites and stuff like that. And they said, the top half of the list is all the people that um, are missing people, missing persons, and the bottom half of the list is property we know is missing from their houses and relative accommodation. And they said, there's a house over the road where one of our main suspects uh, has got his car. Did this stand out to you when you saw this A4 page of all these missing people? Did there was did this seem unusual at all? Oh well, yeah, it was it was a bit unusual. So many missing people and all this equipment, and and then they said, "Oh, we think they're all linked. We think all the missing people are linked together." I said, "Okay," and they said, "We've we know that one of our suspects has um, has driven his car to this house across the road." So they said, "We're seizing the car, which is why the tow truck was there." Um, and we want to photograph and videotape inside and outside the house, looking specifically for these property items on the bottom of the list. So you weren't there for bodies. You were there for Mm. effectively stolen goods in in an investigation involving missing people. Yep. It's all pretty pretty innocent at this point. Absolutely. That's all it should have been. It was was going to be like a two-hour job. That's what I'd factored in. It was probably going to take two hours to do it. So it was very simple. And you, you had no idea that there were there were detectives in Adelaide who had been working on this case for, for quite a long time. Did no, but by the time I got there, um, and we, we, as the job unfolded, I'd learned that, yes, there'd been, surprisingly enough, a junior detective I'd worked with in my uniform days, in our early days, in my early part of my career, I'd worked with this, this fellow. And he had then moved on to, to go on to be a detective. And he'd picked up one of these missing person files. And he picked up a couple of the files over a period of months. And he realised at one point that he was talking to the very same people for these missing people. He was, their associates were all very, all similar. So he then went to his bosses and said, I think there's some connections here. So he kept badgering his bosses. And in the end, that he told me that they, they said, look, we think if you think there's something in it, go to major crime and, and tell them what you've got. So that's what he did. He went up to the major crime office in Adelaide and said, here's what I, here's what I know about these people, this is what I'm working on. So then they started to have a bit of a look and put a bit more, a few more resources into it, and that led to some surveillance on these some of the, the parties, and um, and that's how they found the, the car up at uh, Snowtown. Okay, okay. And these guys were were basically just surreptitiously murdering sort of down-and-out uh, lost people in the northern suburbs of Adelaide, and they'd put the bodies in, yes. in a bank vault in Snowtown. All right, so let's 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 fast forward. So you were in Snowtown. You were about to take some photos. You thought it was going to take two hours. Walk me through it. Okay. So we've gone to the house. We've started taking the photos and doing the videos. There was one one detective from Kadena at my office, um, and there was two that came up from Adelaide. So probably three, maybe four detectives, and myself, and and there was Bronwyn, the other forensic last who came up from from Adelaide. So the, they were just talking to the owner of this house and like they do, not not a formal interview, but you're just talking, you know, keeping him, keeping it friendly, you know, what do you know, and, and those sorts of things. And during that conversation, he had said, oh, yeah, well, John, I do know John Bunting. He he bought that car, he, that's his car. Uh, that's a four-wheel drive that was in the driveway, the remains of one. And he said, yeah, he, he drove it up here. It was full of um, full of barrels with smelly stuff in it. And they went, oh, yeah, that's interesting. What do you mean? And he said, well, he said he, he came, he said, it's more like dead cats. He said, well, what have you got in these things? He said, oh, you don't want to know. He said, so I didn't ask anymore. Really? Yeah, that's what they said. I would have asked. Yeah, I would have asked. As innocent as that it was, apparently, and to this day he's never been charged, so I have no reason to doubt his version. I think he was just a simple country country fella who was fairly trusting and probably didn't know his mate was doing sorts of things. Okay, sure. So then they said, well, where are these barrels now? 
And he said, oh, they're over the, they're over the bank. He said, um, he said, I rent that. He said, I, you know, I do my, do my repairs and stuff there. And he, and they said, well, how do we get in there? He said, I'll give you the key. So he pulled the key out of his pocket and handed him to, handed him the key. So you, you were in the house while this conversation was yes. going on. You weren't, you weren't actually a party to this conversation. No, no, okay. I, I'm still in the house doing my thing and doing my videos and photos and stuff and recording all that. So then they've called me back. Then they've told me that story. I've gone, okay. So we went around the corner to the bank and then we found our way into the back, in the yeah. back through the back gate. And then we got the key and it went in the side door. And so we opened the side door and it opened immediately into the, the kitchen of the old like the bank building. Before we'd gone in the door, we could smell what we thought was going to be cannabis. We thought, well, it smells like you know, marijuana. There's this distinct sort of smell outside the back door. Really? We thought, yeah. Um, I think it turned out to be just the plants in the garden. I, I still, to this day, don't know what plants they were, but they had this distinct cannabis marijuana smell to them. Okay. Um, so we've gone in and we're sort of, in the back of our minds, we're thinking, these drums will be full of you know, fertilized water or something. They'll just be full of stinky, like a bong water or something. Worm juice. Worm juice, yeah. So um, we're not, still not thinking bodies, but nothing like that. No, no, this is also innocent. You yeah, know, so. You're, you're coming yeah, in smelling the flowers yeah. in the garden. And- yeah, and we're, so we've gone in and we've walked, I've, I've videotaped, and then as you've gone in, there's a, a can of air freshener on the, the sink in the kitchen, and you go through, and there's a couple of those little um, air wicky things stuck in the. PowerPoints and giving off a bit of a smell. So it didn't smell badly at all. And I just videotaped and you know, we took some still photographs of some of that stuff. And then we f- could see the vault. We you know, pulled on the door. Nothing happened. So we then, uh, I, I got hold of the tumbler and the tumbler was spinning very freely. I thought, well, that's not working. But the handle on the actual. Right. This is the, So this is the lock mechanism on the bank vault door. Yes. Okay. Yeah. The, the number tumbler thing where they, yep. you know, yeah, yeah. three, three left and right and those things so that was just spinning freely there was talk of thermal lances and oxy cutting gear and i'm just horrified as a forensic officer i'm like oh no mm. heat flame smoke no this is this is not really what I want. mess up oh, your, your scene horrendous um so nobody really knew what to do so i'm saying well it's, it's lunchtime so then we stopped i did the fingerprinting and then um and then so while, while i was waiting brom was having her lunch because she bought her lunch with her and i um I was. I thought, well, I've got nothing to lose, so I've then got this piece of wire and I've stuck it through this really large keyhole, and I can sort of see, you know, poking around, and I've got my hand just resting on this little silver handle, and I'm poking around, and then suddenly the handle's just fallen under the weight of my hand, and I thought, oh gosh, we're in. So I then stopped. Okay, we're in. I stopped. Then so then grabbed the video, and then you know, we go. Greg opened the door, and then it was just a complete wall of black plastic. And sticky tape, right, right. He'd uh, he'd walled it off. He'd sealed up the vault mm. with black plastic. Yeah. So inside the door frame is um, yeah, he'd sticky taped this black plastic sheeting uh, all around the sides, the bottom, the top, and had a vertical slit in the middle, which was also taped up. And we still got no smell. And we're thinking when we seal this black plastic, we've gone. Oh, it's going to be drugs. We're expecting to be white on the inside, and it'll be where the lighting is and stuff where they reflect it. Um, so then we've Stoney's then pulled the, the sticky tape down while I've got the video running, and immediately then he could smell it. He said, "It's not, it's not dope, it's not not drugs." We could, could smell. Could you smell it? Uh, yeah. So, shortly after, I could smell it. Yeah, that was the acrid smell of so you decomposing bodies. You weren't even in the room yet. You, no, no, you just, you just well, unsealed the plastic. But, yeah, the smell came out fairly rapidly. Um, still wasn't overpowering. But it was definitely the smell of you know, decomposing matter. Did you recognise it? Oh yeah, you knew. Yeah, it was it was definitely a meat a decomposing meat or you know, body smell. I'd seen plenty of those in my career. When you when you got hit with that smell, how did you feel? I think we thought straight away. I thought, well, this is suddenly this has now gone from a, a straightforward photo and video job to possibly something far more sinister. Knowing we've got a number of missing people. So so tell me about stepping through into the room. Initially, um, I just put the camera in, had a look around because it was very dark. So we had to use a torch. So a torch in one hand, video camera in the other, and we could see we had a number of barrels. And um, there was a green lounge chair standing up on it, standing up on its ends and stuff. Um, and I remember distinctly a green lounge chair was one of the items that we'd be looking for on the bottom half of that sheet mm. earlier in the day. And I thought, mm. Okay, so there's our lounge chair. And inside, once you get past the plastic, I can see um, sets of knives sitting on top of the upended lounge suite there's several boxes of plastic gloves there's rubber gloves turned inside out there's a saw there's handcuffs 
and, and these sorts of things and belts and stuff. Like, oh, okay, this is this is looking really bad now. So we've then pretty much stopped and had to obviously call in reinforcements. People have gone, found the other detectives, and everyone's on the phone to their respective bosses at their sections back in Adelaide, saying, "Hey, we've just got this. This is this job's just turned to stuff. Um, we need, you know, as we, in, we like, need an army of people." You, you knew, you guys knew that this this had had really gone weird. It had taken a very unexpected turn. Very much, yeah, yeah. It was it was actually surreal to think that what started off was just a straightforward photographic and video job in relation to some missing people um yeah has now suddenly gone to this thing where we've got sores handcuffs the smell of rotting flesh and rotting humans so we've then rung out adelaide and said hey we've got this we need to send more people up and then the debate happened a few hours later some of their senior detectives have come up from the um, major crime it was like the homicide squad They've come up and uh, then the debate's gone on. Well, we still don't know what we're, what we're dealing with. Said, no, we don't. We've we found three five-litre drums of hydrochloric acid sitting along the top of the, the, the upended sofa. That's ominous. Yeah. So I thought, hmm, interesting. We worked out they were empty. So the assumption was, well, how, how dangerous would that be to us in confined spaces like a vault and things? So calls were made to... The forensic chemistry people, they said, you know, in a confined space, it could be quite overpowering. The debate then went on about, can we bring one of the barrels out? Can we tip it out on the front lawn? Because but at this stage, we still haven't confirmed we've actually got bodies there. We've got a very strong suspicion, but we haven't actually done that. So um, in the end, I said, look, I'm I'm qualified in breathing apparatus. I had previously been a volunteer firefighter and stuff, so I'd been trained in the, the BA stuff that the fire brigade people use, the mask and the, the cylinder on your back. I said, if you can get me one of those from the local volunteer fire service, I can open those barrels and we can see what's in them. Crack open a barrel. Mm, so that's what that's what happened. So he handed him this kit, so he brought it back to me. So I've turned it on, put it on. Because this is all happening whilst we're on the opposite corner of the bank is the pub. It's the Snowtown pub. Okay. This is, so this we're is trying to keep this on the... A funny on, kind of twist here. Yeah, we're trying to keep it on the very much on the lowdown without... Everybody knowing, but the last thing we needed was a media circus to turn up. Were there people at the front of the pub, you know, holding their, their pints or whatever and watching? Not at the early stage, but by the afternoon, like, like late afternoon, everyone knocked off from work. So, yeah, there was a lot of activity at the pub. And that I was, would have watched. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, I guess we were lucky that most of us had unmarked cars. So you're putting on this protective gear. Did you have any trepidation? Uh, probably a little bit on what I, see, on what I was going to see. So I... I undid the first barrel. And it's plastic. It's got like a screw lid. Yeah, big screw uh, lid on the top. So the barrels, before they ended up at Snowtown, those barrels were actually used for storing olives, hmm. olive barrels. So I've taken this and I've had to carefully, I've got my gloves on, so I'm carefully prising off this rubber ring. And the first one I've opened, you know, I can see you know, the remains of a somewhat mummified human foot and a bit of an ankle. And I thought, and there were some other gloves and things in there. So I thought, okay, that's what we had. So then... So, so let's just freeze frame on that for a minute. I mean, what sort of effect did that? Did you get a, a bit of a chill up your spine, or what? You know, what happened? I think immediately I'm 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 in shock. I'm, oh my god! Like this is there's this there's this human foot, and it's it's poking. I can see the sole of the foot. So the rest of the body, it presumably, is upside down, head first in this barrel. Yeah. And all I can see is a foot, and everything's sort of there's dirt and other you know, plastic and stuff in there. So I thought, well. That's that's horrendous. Yeah, there's at least a body. So that's confirmed our suspicions. So we've justified everything we're doing from here on in. Yeah, yeah. We've, we've now got at least a body. What does a what does a human body immersed in hydrochloric acid look like? Well, that one was well, that one wasn't in hydrochloric acid as it turned out. There, there was only one barrel that had the acid in it. And that was the last one. Um, so that was a, a hydrochloric acid is really just a bleach. It's like a pool yeah, chlorine. Yeah. So yeah. Um, it was very pale skin, but the barrel I had was quite dry, um, and as I moved around, a few more of the barrels, I eventually took the lids off all of them. Um, it became apparent that a couple of those bodies had been exhumed. There was soil and bits and pieces on them. I thought, okay, right. interesting. Hey, we're just going to stop here for a quick ad break, but stick around. We'll be right back with more What It Was Like. How 
would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Okay, so, so you open them all up. Um, I'm guessing that you would have seen hands, feet, heads. Uh, no heads. Um, mostly hands, like feet and arms and, and bits of leg. Because when they got them back to the mortuary, it turned out in, eventually that we had six barrels, but there were actually eight bodies there. So they had cut all these bodies up and were putting bits and pieces in. So some barrels, when they laid them out the mortuary, some barrels yeah. had you know Jesus. three arms and one torso and two legs and... Are there? I mean, it's it's what uh, twenty four years since this happened. Are there are there images of this that stick with you? And I'm, I guess I'm, I, if I imagine myself in that situation, you know, like a little bit of nail polish on a foot would would really get to me, or like a tattoo, you know, like signs of humanity, little bits of individualism would would mm. stick with me. Yeah, there was certainly I could see there were some tattoos and bits and pieces, which. From a forensic perspective, you think, okay, well, that's useful because we can use the tattoos usually to identify people and confirm identity. Um, but some of them had been uh, been dead for longer than others, so you had different states of decay within the barrels. Okay, so you'd, you'd, by this point, you'd spend most of the day in this in this bank vault, which is kind of like ground zero for, for really one of the most horrific crimes in Australian history. What sort, of, what sort of effect does that have on you when you when you're in a place? An environment like that, you know, I imagine it had a bit of an atmosphere. Oh, certainly, there's this. You start to go through the the whole thing. You think these poor people, what have they endured? Knowing that there are sores there, handcuffs, there was a electrical cabling and stuff that was set up. Probably you could see that perhaps being tortured and things like that. And as it all unfolded down the track, that's exactly what had happened. And and the wallet and the the, the wallet inside the, the door frame was the last victim. We didn't even know. He wasn't even on the list. Oh, really? He wasn't even missing at that stage. It was it was just a, we had the wallet. Went, There's the name. So then I went and make some inquiries and thought, yeah, well, he's from down that, down that area too. And he'd been lured there um, only a night or two before on, on the guise of buying a computer. That's right. I remember mm. this is one of the final scenes in, in Snowtown, the movie. Mm. He he's, he's this sort of just seemingly nice guy who shows up wanting to buy a computer. Yeah. And they, Kill him in the in They've the bank vault. Yep. Tell me about the smell. I'm I'm really curious because in my in my experience, smells stay with me. You know, like years mm. later, I find myself just I'll get a like tiny little whiff of something that's reminiscent of the past, and it all comes flooding back. Can you describe that smell and if it stayed with you? Uh, it certainly stays with you. I mean, I guess any police officer, any emergency services person who has smelt death, um, you'll never you'll never forget that smell. But it's it's very much like. If you leave leave a piece of meat outside in the house, you know, think of a steak or you know, a piece of pork, a bit of chicken even, mm. leave it on your kitchen bench longer than you should or leave it outside, then go to it and, oh, look at that. Um, once the maggots and stuff are, are sort of getting interested in it, 
It's at that stage. It's that smell of that sort of thing. It's the same smell. It's very much the same smell. Okay. So so the acid hadn't really altered the smell. It was no. essentially just rotting meat. No. The, probably the one had the least amount of smell. Bearing in mind I've got breathing gear on so I can't smell anything, which is the whole idea of it, um, to protect me from, from sucking up any acids that might be there. Um, the one that probably smelt the least was the one that had the most fluid, which was barrel F, the last one we did, which was had the, um, I think it had Elizabeth um, Hayden's body in it. Um, it was white skinned leg that was soaking in hydrochloric acid. So mm. the other, yeah. Um, and so the smell wasn't horrendous because it's been uh, it's encapsulated in the water, but all the other stuff had smelt. Yeah. What was the what was the mood amongst the team? You know, were people excited to be on a big case, or was it this? No, I well, I remember um, detectives are generally thinking, oh, there's so much work to do. Uh, right. what, what we're going to do now. Um, and to their credit, you know, they're, they're focusing, okay, we need to keep a media lid on this. This is going to be massive. Um, clearly, we've we've uncovered a much bigger thing. Excitement from the young detective, because he's he's now been completely cleared of all this, the other senior detectives in my office that were making fun of me and saying there's nothing in this. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah. I've now been completely... Validation. Yeah, absolutely validated. So he was sort of half pleased now, whilst you know, he didn't realise there's an, and there an enormous amount of work and we've got a number of... You know, dead people and we've got you know, relatives that are going to be grieving so most of your excitement is, is not on that it's then focusing on right can we need to uh, they were going to get their surveillance people recall them uh, get them out of their beds put them back on the job you need to go you know, follow these people again we want to know what they're doing mm. we need to keep keep it quiet from the media so i mean when i got to snowtown i got to the police station at eleven thirty. it was two o'clock the following morning when i've actually got home it was two o'clock in the morning. Two o'clock in the morning, and I've because I absolutely reeked. Um, by the end of the day, we've we've moved the barrels out and things. We've put them into a trailer, and one of the detectives we put them into a cage trailer. He drove them that night to the mortuary in Adelaide under the cover of darkness, hopefully. And then they'd done the media release in the morning once the surveillance were in place. So they went public with it pretty quick. Yeah, they, they had to because it was on, you know, on the bank. And when they went public, then. The, the crooks, they tend to run around a bit like ants, then they're going to be mm. panic. Oh, they've got this, they've got that, and so off they go. Um, and that allowed the surveillance people then to, to follow them and watch, watch what, what they were doing, dumping of clothes and things like that. I'm curious to know how you felt. So, so a couple of things. First of all, the drive home alone after that at two in the morning. Yeah. What was that like? Um, well, because it's country South Australia, um, the road between Snowtown and Kadena is partly it was unsealed back in those yeah, days yeah. so I'm, I'm trying to, I'm trying to stay awake it's dark I'm looking for kangaroos so I don't have I don't have a kangaroo proof car um, I'm very tired I know I absolutely stink because whilst we're at the bank other people said can you just stand I was having to stand upwind of them or downwind of them because the the smell was coming off my clothes was in my uniform so I didn't want to bring that into my house so I remember stripping off to my undies uh, on the back porch of my house right then going in, having a shower, and going to bed. And Had you called your wife? You know, was she? I'd called her. Weirdly enough, I'd called her about one o'clock, I think, and said, oh, "I'm tied up at this job." Um, Did I you said, tell her what was happening? Oh, well, no, I just told her, I've got this job at Snowtown. We're going to do some photos and stuff because this is before the body. Right. Happened. Okay. I think I have probably rung her again later on. And said, "Okay, now we've got this body, so I don't know when I'm going to be home." Was she kind of like? Ah, oh, well, I've already made you dinner. Or was it kind of more like, oh, my God, a serial killer? Oh, no, I think it was more, you know, that's okay. Yeah. Thanks for letting me know. I won't make dinner for you. Like, right. This, uh, Yeah, I guess for you, you know, you're a seasoned cop, so <laughs> it's part yeah. of the job. Yeah, well, she, yeah, she would have got used to that. I mean, you still go home, you say what happened. And sometimes you, they don't want to know all the details because, you know, it's just, it's too horrific. Um, and you, you do get this little uh, sort of empathy with them. You have to think, what did these people go through? You know, how... What sort of evil human does this to another human, first mm, of all? Yeah. And what were they feeling? Uh, you know, how were they feeling? Uh, having electro, electrical probes you know, put on their body and turned up, and, and cause this is all going you know, to come out later, but you think that you know, just the person that then cuts somebody up with a literally with a, a timber, just a handsaw, starts cutting them up just crudely and you know, shoving them in a barrel. Were you dealing with these kind of thoughts in the days after, especially that night? Definitely, yeah. I mean, it's um, mentally, I think Bronwyn, as I, as I understand it, um, she was, because it was one of, one of her fairly early uh, jobs, murder-wise, and I remember she spent a lot of the afternoon just saying, oh, I can't believe it. I, my body count's just gone from, from zero to like six. Mm. 
And I spent a lot of time trying to you know, calm her and bring her it's okay, we'll work through this together. You know, one step at a time. I, know I was concerned with Bron when I rang the following day. I said, look, I'm really worried about her. She was really quite overdrawn, over, overawed by the whole thing. Keep an eye on her. Um, so at that stage, their response was then to get her involved for the next three or four days or weeks with all the other matters involving the job. Why? Well, I don't know. It's no surprise. That seems counterintuitive. Yeah, like, she's does. she's not coping with this. We're worried about it. Oh, okay, let's throw all the admin in the, in yeah, the tail end of and this. And give her all these other follow-up inquiries and the rest of it. And then she got to learn more about the matter and the torture. But, you know, again, it's just, I guess, 1999. We've moved. Most police services yeah, moved a long way. A a I'd like world. to think that won't happen again in the current environment. But, yeah, mental health is a big issue for, particularly for forensic officers and a lot of police, depending where they work. Yeah, so, yeah. It's a stressful job. I, I want to get into, so the other thing about 1999 is that it was kind of a long time ago now, and just the phrase, serial killer, it's much more in the in the public lexicon. You know, Netflix is full of it. You can't listen to a podcast without a serial killer cropping up somewhere. Just just public awareness of, of this uh, this psychology is, is probably much more prevalent than it was in 1999. Mm-hmm. So, so I'm wondering, you know, how soon... Did you guys start talking about a serial killer, or, or was it, or was it kind of like, oh, that's a bit sensational, that's a bit American, that doesn't happen here, or very quickly was it like, no, that's what we're dealing with? Oh, that's an interesting question. I, I don't know that the term serial killer came up at all, and the whole time we're at Snowtown, really, knew, we well, we knew because we you had, had serial bodies. Yeah, we did have serial bodies, but um, the serial killing thing, maybe that was a media thing, but. I, we just knew there was a lot of bodies, and they were all connected. Um, well, we, we now know, you know clearly it was a serial killing, but I can't recall anyone saying, hey, this is a serial killing. We knew they were connected, and we knew that you know, there was going to be a lot of a massive amount of work being done to try and identify them and, and you know, link them all together. Um, but it wasn't maybe because we thought, I guess you know, we had, well, at that stage, we thought we had six. turned out we had eight bodies there. But by the time they've linked them all together and found these other associates and other missing people, um, they got charged with 14 murders. Mm. I mean, that's that's a serial killer. That's a serial killer, yeah. yeah. And by then you've got, you know, over the whole period of time, over about a four or five-year period, you know, there's 14 people. It's horrendous. I guess this case continued. The, the tail end of this went for months, possibly years afterwards. Uh, were you involved in that? You know, what, what role did you play? I didn't have a lot of further. I went back the following day. I mean, I got home at 2 o'clock in the morning, so I had a little bit of involvement there. But the, re- the rest of the follow-ups were all around the suburbs of Adelaide and, and areas like that. So that didn't involve me as much. Did you ever meet or see in the courtroom maybe John Bunting? Yes. In, uh, only when I gave evidence in court. And they were sitting in the witness box. So so tell me about your impression of, of looking at John Bunting. What did you see? Oh, he was sitting just like calmly looking at the court. And I don't even think he watched me come into the courtroom. I didn't want to look at him and you know, have that eye-to-eye thing. But I've glanced at him as I, as I walked past and... He just had this sort of stare. I mean, the man's a psychopath. I have no doubt. That he, no doubt. No doubt he's, mm-hmm. a, he's a psychopath. Um, so I didn't want to make too much eye contact with him. Uh, it's just, it's evil. But it was like he had no emotion. I didn't didn't seem to see any emotion. Other people, you think they'd be worried and nervous. He just sat there. Just, it was like he was just watching TV or something. Yeah, he may as well have been watching TV, looking yeah. across the courtroom. Did he look? Did he look unusual? You know, if you'd passed him in the street, would he have caught your eye for any reason? No, no. He's a very unassuming looking sort of bloke. Really, very, very ordinary looking looking fellow. Apart from being in his prison prison colours, but yeah, he was yeah. he was just ordinary. Did you feel any anger towards him looking at him? No, not not anger. Um, I felt more for the victims. I thought, you know, you're just evil because he. I mean, he wasn't to know, but I'd actually worked with the last victim's father. I had worked with before I joined the police many years ago at um, a factory. Really, Holden's, yeah. Just this, this sort of quirk of serendipity. Yeah, you talk about the six degrees of separation. Mm. When yeah, Marcus Johnson worked at General Motors Holden's with me uh, and my what was going to be my wife eventually. Um, we had this. Uh, he was what we called the oiler. His job was to go around and he would oil the machines and you know, make sure they're always level on all, all the presses and things like that. So he would move around and we'd have chats to him. And I had no idea. I hadn't seen him for 20 years where it was. Oh, no. No, 10 years, I suppose. Um, 
20 years. So so that made it real for you? That made it personal? Yeah, I guess it sort of did. And it was his son was um, was the last one. He uh, was his wallet we found in there. That was he was the guy looking to buy a computer. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and, and Marcus was was his dad. I uh, didn't I didn't know him, but I saw him. And I thought you can't forget his face. But uh, yeah, that was his job. And I saw I couldn't believe. It. I thought I know that man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It really strikes me in this case. All right, so it's it's famous because there were all these bodies and barrels. That's that's fairly memorable. But but the thing that I think has really stuck with me through reading about it is is just what a what a sad collection of lonely vulnerable people were targeted by John Bunting. Like people who were just luckless. They'd somehow been born into horrible, abusive families. They'd had no lucky breaks after that. They'd fallen into the trap of this predator and been brutally murdered. Like that was their lives. Yeah. And, and and that had just been, that, that happened over and over again. You know, 14 people had had that experience. And, and to me, that is the defining aspect of this case. Just mm-hmm. how it's got a real snapshot of, of just, kind of the saddest parts of Australian society. Yeah, it is. Um, I mean, as I understand it, the, the first couple of victims were, were killed because Bunting had decided that, in their view, these people were homosexual or transgender, uh, and they were um, therefore they were going to be pedophiles. But they also worked out that um, if they these people still get paid there, you can be a missing person and you still get paid mm. the um, your, your social security benefits and things. So it became then a way of them grabbing money. There's there's footage of them going to ATMs with other people's bank cards. And so it became a job and sort of became a career slowly. Of sorts, yeah. An income for a source of income. Uh, one, they rang up. Um, there was a public appeal and said, oh, you know, we're looking for, I think it was one of the women, we're looking for this, this lady. Um, and a fella rang Missing Persons Bureau in Adelaide and said, oh, I know, I know her. She's not missing. She's just in Tasmania on a holiday. And she doesn't want the family to know, you know, that, but she's okay. So then they have done the checks on her bank, and sure enough, there's bank transactions, ATMs, and stuff in Tasmania. Mm. So they've made notes on the file to that effect. Case closed. God, that caller was John Bunting. Is that right? Yeah, and he knew because they've been down in Tassie using her money. He was a pretty clever guy. In in some ways, yes. Yeah. Like like renting a bank vault. You know, just just that knowledge that like a bank vault's going to be designed to sort of retain a smell and to, to sort of seal it up with plastic and stuff. This is he's he's thought this through pretty carefully. Yeah, he has thought that through. I mean, bearing in mind he, he it was the other fellow who rented the house that um, owned the bank. But how he knows this fellow, I won't name him. But how he knows you know, the the house occupant, I don't know. But to yeah, to know that he had the house Snowtown, it's it's almost perfect. You know, Snowtown's a little sleepy town. Nothing yeah, really much right. happens at Snowtown. Yeah. It warrants two police officers simply because it's a big area. They've got a lot of farming land yes. and stuff. God, I feel a bit sorry for the uh, the tourism authority of Snowtown. You know, they're they're trying to bring people to their town, and like most of these murders didn't even happen in Snowtown. And and forever, the town's going to be synonymous with this awful case. Very much so. Yeah, they they struggled uh, early on because um, somebody even put a souvenir shop into the in actual bank, I believe, at one point, um, which I think upset a lot of the locals because they were selling plastic little plastic barrel key rings and things oh, like that. God. They try and milk the, milk the whole thing. But yeah, the locals certainly weren't happy about it. Um, yeah. But it's put them on the map probably for the wrong reasons. Um, I think the biggest thing I ever did at Snowtown before that was a a coach crashed um, on the outskirts of, of Snowtown several wow. years before. When you say coach, I'm thinking almost like a horse and, well, as in, horse as and a, buggy. No, kind as, of. In, as in a bus, sorry. In, oh, yeah, in, yeah. Interstate, like a Greyhound bus. Cobb and Co. No. Hey, we're just going to stop here for a quick ad break, but stick around. We'll be right back with more What It Was Like. This is a, probably, I assume, a big case in your career, but you know, you've been in the police force for a long time. So we sort of touched on mental health with some of your colleagues before. I mean, how did it, how did it affect you personally? I think eventually, I, I have since been diagnosed with PTSD. Um, down the track, I had um, this number of other things going on, you know, not just work life, but work life, domestic life at the time. Um, I have, I call it my falling out of the tree moment when I sort of fell off the branch and um, I got laid up for a, a couple of weeks, but 
good psychologist and back into work again. Um, I didn't want it to, to end my career. I was, too, I was too young, didn't want it to finish. So I worked hard to try and get myself through that. You do those things and you know, put your hand up, recognize when you're not traveling well. Yeah. And do, do you feel like this experience at Snowtown was a catalyst for this? It certainly wouldn't have helped, but um, I, I can't say it's a catalyst for it. it I guess with, with PTSD, it's often it's a very much a cumulative thing. It's not a one-off yeah. incident. And for me, it was you know, 20, 30 years of, of just dealing with dead people and stuff like that. When I finished up recently, I actually did some stats. And um, I worked out I'd actually seen over 100 murdered people in my career. Really? Just murdered people. My God. Not just not those who may just collapse at home for you know, natural causes or you know, they have mishaps, they have drug overdoses, the, the suicides and things like that. But yeah, over 100 murdered people I've seen in my career. And we start you think, Gordon, that's, that's a lot of people though. I've got every reason to be a little bit loopy. Oh, mate, seriously. <laughs> if I saw one murdered person, that'd be it. I'd, be, I'd take the, the rest of the year off. Um. So the movie came out a few years ago. I think mm. it was 2011, and it was—I don't know—it was kind of a big deal. There was—it was a controversial movie. Some people said it was one of the best sort of Australian crime movies ever. It was, you know, it provoked a reaction. I, I'm wondering if it meant anything in particular to you. I—I I did see it because um, I thought well, I need to see it, and I, I say to people as I will now, you know, it was a hard watch. Mm. Um, it was very graphic, but it was also. From what I understand, it was very accurate for what I'd heard during the trial and the things we'd seen. The evil that's portrayed in that movie is is pretty much what it was. These were just evil people that were torturing people and had no regard for human life whatsoever. I mean, tell me about tell me about evil. What what have you learned about evil in all your years? Well, evil uh, evil manifests itself in sometimes the most unexpected people. Right? You you see people think, what what caused them to do that? I think a lot of the time, a lot of the murders I've been involved in, where they're domestic-related, you know, their husbands and wives and things, it often seems to be the case that the motivation is to stop them having a drama with family courts and divorce courts and things like that. But of course, invariably, it just leads them to even more dramas because they end up in, in prison. Yeah, you skip the divorce court and just go yeah, straight just go, to the magistrates. Just go straight to prison. And, and you've, then you've effectively orphaned your children. You know, you've got some issues with custody. It's a, a busy, busy area for police to be in, but to um, you know, to actually kill your spouse to to try and maintain custody, it's counterproductive because you know you're just going to orphan those children effectively. Yeah, you're you're going to jail. Your partner has been killed. You've you've killed them. Who wins from that? No one. Yeah, yeah. A little while ago, now I spoke to a woman who, um, uh, she was an American lawyer. And uh, and she was a specialist in basically telling the story of the people who were on death row. She her job was to just sort of defend them and provide a sort of counter argument to them as a sort of cold blooded psychopath. So so that was her job. Anyway, at the end of the conversation, she had a really interesting take on on murder, and she and she sort of talked about the banality of evil, the way that evil sort of shows up in sometimes the most boring, unassuming people. And it's it's like you say, there's this thing where you want to you almost want to skip. Uh, all the hassle of getting a divorce. I mean, that's that's such a sort of a boring kind of a middle of the road motivation to kill someone, yeah. but it leads to such that's such right. a dramatic outcome. Mm. Uh, yeah, I mean, do you, you you might know this phrase, the banality of evil. You know, do you, do you have any thoughts on that? I haven't I haven't come across that term before, but yeah, that's that's probably a very good description of it. You now that you've got people that you think you walk past them in the street and you think that's not that's not a killer. You know, or people say to me. You know, you know, what's what's a, what's a murderer look like? What's a killer look like? Well, they look like you and I. They're just an average, or more than often. Mm. Sometimes they're accidental, a, a split second of, of panic and stuff like that. Um, I mean, I only have to look at the American situation, I suppose, with their, their firearms laws. Mm. How many people in that split second you know, get shot and they're killed? Um, thankfully in Australia, generally if you're going to get shot and killed by your by your spouse or someone, there's some level of premeditation with that because you've got to source the firearm. It's really hard to get a gun. Yeah, and they're not, they're not lying around loaded on top of the fridge or in the pantry. Under the pillow. Yeah, where the Americans have them. Has, has this stuff affected your view of humanity? No, I still think the average human is good and can be trusted, um, even though you know a lot of police will probably say, no, that's not everyone's bad. 
you certainly, I mean, I've become hypervigilant. I think all police do. Um, I find my, my wife knows, you know, when we go to a restaurant and sit down, she'll know which side of the table I prefer to sit on. Yeah. Which side's that? Well, so I can see who's coming in the door and stuff like that. I don't like, it's just a, a really weird thing. I mean, I'm, I'm hoping now that I'm no longer in the police, I'll be able to grow out of that and I'll become, you know, but these are the sort of things you've spent your, uh, more than half my life doing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think um, I really just got one more question. Mm. Um, now, you've been in the police force for a long time. You've really had front row seats to what these kind of crimes do to people, what they do to families. I mean, how does that make you feel? Do you feel like the average person doesn't quite comprehend the, the gravity of this stuff? Um, it's not something that's going to... I'm not going to go home tonight and not sleep or anything like that. Mm. Um, I've got past all those things. Um, you certainly have... I don't have nightmares as such anymore. Um but again, good psychologists will help you with all those sorts of things. So if there are any any police or emergency services people that are listening, then you know, please put your hand up. Don't be afraid to say, I'm not travelling that well. It's perfectly normal. It is it is normal to recognise that what you do is not normal. And if you're not feeling quite right, then go and get some help. And and it's not career ending. I'm living proof. You know, I've had another geez, I when mine happened. Um I'm living proof that you can have a like a full-on mental episode. I was breaking down in tears. I was crying. I was a gibbering wreck. I didn't know what was happening to me. I was terrified. Mm. No such thing. You know, full-on nervous breakdown as such, I'll call it. Um, I got to, you know, took myself home, was still crying, went to the doctors. They put me in a separate room, thankfully, because I just couldn't get an appointment with the doctor. So I need some, something was going wrong with me. So I'm, and I'm living proof you can continue on in the same career, in the same job, doing what I was doing, because I said, I want to come back. I think I lost maybe three weeks in total, um, and it hasn't, it hasn't, didn't, you know, didn't completely stop my career. I still went on, did other things, or kept doing doing the same things. So people who are saying no, you can't speak up if you're not well, um, because you know it'll finish your career, they'll kick you out. That's not true. Mm. It doesn't have to be that way. I think that's that's a really important message. Mm. Gordon, thanks so much for talking with me today. It's a pleasure, Julian. Thank you. If you've enjoyed today's episode and you're thinking, hey, I've got a story that's uh, that's pretty cool, something that could work for this show, you know, something interesting but surprising, a little bit unique, please get in touch, hit me up. I'm always looking for story suggestions or feedback or, you know, whatever you got. I'm Julian Morgans on Instagram and Morgans Julian on X. And you know what? We'd love you to follow the show. You know the the follow button on whatever your podcast app is? Just press that. We'll be eternally grateful. And if you're on Apple Podcasts, please leave us a review. Just a just a simple five stars should do it. You don't even have to overthink it. Today's episode was produced by Rachel Tuffrey. It was edited and mixed by Nicholas Feliciano. Jimmy Saunders did our theme music. Our cover art is by Naomi Lee Beveridge. And this whole thing has been a super real production. Thank you.